coming in. Uh, I'm going to pray, and uh, we're going to get into our session today. Oh, gracious, righteous, glorious Lord, we thank you for the joy of gathering together as your people today. Help us, we pray, as we look into your word, we ask that you would give us wisdom. You have promised that all those who lack it should ask of you, and you will give unbegrudgingly. And from you comes all good gifts. And so, uh, Lord, we pray that you would continue in your faithfulness to us, uh, that you would keep us by your word, you would strengthen us, and uh, by your uh, spirit, you would provide for us all that is needed for life and godliness. Uh, make us sufficient for every good work as we look into your word, and especially for that work of evangelism and sharing the message of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would sharpen us today as we think about how we can be ambassadors for you and that you would be glorified in our speaking of you. Uh, whether we gather together or whether we are scattered in the world, we pray that you would make us your people and that you would make us faithful to evangelize. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, here we are, uh, session four of our evangelism class. Uh, let me give you a heads up that I think um, I originally told the, uh, the session uh, that uh, my plan was to have between four and six classes. Today is number four, um, and I believe next week will be the last one. Don't quote me on that. Um, but uh, I had originally planned that today we would begin uh, to talk about methods of evangelism and then clarify the message uh, that we are sharing and teaching. I think probably we'll just get through the methods portion of that today, and uh, we will leave, basically that means the, uh, the last session next week uh, where we sharpen ourselves and remind ourselves what exactly is the gospel that we're preaching um, and, uh, and what are the essentials that we need to have in there to make sure that we are preaching the Christian gospel and not just something that we are uh, comfortable with and that our hearers are comfortable with. And so probably today uh, we're going to look at uh, method and uh, just give you a reminder where we came from last week. Now we finished our discussion concerning misconceptions about evangelism and uh, all those pictures of other old dead guys, uh, all those Calvinists who were zealous for evangelism and we began to examine where evangelism happens in, uh, in our hostile, uh, quote-unquote, post-Christian culture. Uh, and we compared that to the first century culture, and we saw that at least, um, I'll give you a heads up, uh, we began to talk uh, about this. Where does evangelism happen? Well, it happens uh, in the church. Uh, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, and uh, Lee gave us uh, a, a brief jump into the next section. Well, it also, it also happens out in the world, and, and that's where we're going to pick up today. Uh, but before we do that, thank you. Before we do that, um, our guiding text for today. And uh, it's a bonus day, so we get two, but wait, there's more. Um, two passages today. The first one is Proverbs 11, verse 30. I've got the King James here because this uh, has the language that we want, the language that uh, a lot of our Presbyterian and, uh, and Puritan uh, forebears used. Uh, often they didn't talk about evangelism, as we would use the phrase. They didn't talk about evangelizing your neighbors. They didn't talk about uh, sharing the gospel, uh, but they did talk about winning souls. And so if you read... Uh, works from more than about 150 years ago about evangelism, they talk about soul winning. They talk about gathering in souls for Christ and, and gathering in the elect. And, and that language comes at least from Proverbs 11.30. And it says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, 
and he that winneth souls is wise. Like most Proverbs, this has two parts to it. Uh, The first, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. What comes about from the life of a righteous person? Well, it it actually bears a tree of life. This is an interesting idea that normally you see these agricultural images in Scripture where uh, you are the tree and the tree bears fruit. Um, You think of Jeremiah uh, chapter 17 or Psalm um, chapter 1, the man who trusts in the Lord is like a tree planted by deep waters and And he does not fear, though the sun comes, and and he will bear fruit. But here it says the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. This idea of, well, the fruit has the seed, and the seed actually begins uh, to to sprout new life somewhere else. Uh, And and it's talking about the effect that the righteous have in the world, that they actually begin uh, to plant life in other places. And then the second half of it, he that winneth souls is wise. Um, this is talking about the uh, attractiveness uh, that draws in others to follow after the righteous and leave their path of death and destruction. Matthew Henry commented on this verse. He says, those that would win souls, excuse me, those that would win souls have need of wisdom to know how to deal with them. And those that do win souls show that they are wise. And so today, as we begin to talk about methods for evangelism, Uh, we're talking about what wisdom do we have that we can use to engage with the world? Uh, What can we uh, put together about what we know of God and the gospel and the way that he works and the situation that we're in and try to to meld those together in a way that gives us an approach uh, to people who haven't yet heard so that we can also be those that are wise, uh, that can win souls. Uh, and then I added in uh, 1 Corinthians 9 as well to give us a, a bit of direction today. I've, in the slide, for sake of space, I've cut out the middle, but I'll, I'll read the whole thing. Verses 19 through 23, uh, you are familiar with this passage. Paul writes, For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Same language there as uh, Proverbs 11. Made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. What a wonderful vision for us about what uh, evangelism is supposed to be. Uh, And it's not just, you know, sometimes we we think of evangelism as our duty uh, to those who are outside, even our duty to the Lord, and that's true. Uh, that, that the primary motivation for evangelism is that we want the Lord to be glorified. And so we go proclaiming the truth of his triumph over sin and death and hell. We go into the world with a message of his grace and his salvation, and the Lord is glorified, whether people turn uh, to him or whether they turn away, that when his gospel is preached, the Lord is glorified. Uh, and that's our primary motivation. And our secondary motivation is also that, that we want sinners to come to Christ. We, we want to snatch, as, uh, as uh, Jude says, we want to snatch them as a brand plucked from the fire. 
uh, that others should be saved from destruction and judgment. That's another good motivation. But look at the motivation that Paul has in the end of here. I do it all for the sake of the gospel so that I might share with them in its blessings. What a, a wonderful thing when we come together week after week uh, and we share together in the blessings of the gospel. And we hear God's word preached and we join together in prayer and we come together at the table and we join ourselves together as one body and we rejoice together in Christ. And there's a fellowship, there's a sharing that happens and Paul says, this is what I want. I want to use my life and, and everything the Lord will give me. I want to win others and so I'm going to go out of my way uh, he's not going to transgress the bounds that the Lord has given him. He's not going to engage in sin in order to catch sinners. He doesn't say that. Uh, but, but where it's not a, a sin and righteousness issue, he is wise to win souls. And he goes out and he does it, he says, because he wants to share together with them. Uh, and so that's our, our vision, our guiding text for today. Now, we want to talk about what does it mean uh, to win souls and how can be, we be wise to do that? And so we began talking last time, where does evangelism happen? Uh, and we saw that it happens in the church. And, and there is um, that passage that we saw. Um, Paul, you know, you're reading 1 Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians is a church letter. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with church issues. And so he's uh, dealing with what should the church do when the church comes together in a corporate setting. And yet we saw last week that he almost assumes that outsiders will be involved in the work of the church. And uh, we began to talk about, well, how can, how can we think about uh, how we bring outsiders into our church, that they might hear the gospel? Uh, that is by far uh, the, the most effective means, the, the greatest method that the Lord uses to draw sinners to himself. It is the preaching of the word. Uh, and often it takes a long time. It takes long sustained uh, exposure to the Word of God. That's what Paul wrote um, in, uh, in Romans chapter 9. How will they hear unless it is preached? Uh, and so he talks about uh, those whose feet take the good news everywhere. And, and so Paul talks to the Corinthians and he says, you know, th there might be some unbelievers who come in among you, and when that happens, if uh, the Word is preached faithfully, if that's uh, what he's talking about here with, with prophecy, um, and they, they enter, they're convicted, they're called to account, and falling on his face, he'll worship God and declare that God is really among you. And so there's a, there's a corporate aspect of evangelism, but we also began to think about this question, and, uh, and Lee raised the issue, well, how do we differentiate um, between what the church, the gathered church does, and what the members of the church do, as they go out into the world, and I think this is also a very important avenue for evangelism, and one that we have to uh, latch on to. Can I get a volunteer to read for us just a few verses, also in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verses 9 and 10. Anybody care to grab that for us? Mike, thank you. Go ahead, Mike. Okay. Well, this is curious. Um, here we are again in the same letter. Paul is writing to a church that is surrounded by a completely debased culture. 
and he talked to them about church issues before. This is in a larger setting. Paul is uh, talking about the man who was caught in adultery with his stepmother. He was lying with his father's wife, um, and, uh, and he says, not even the Gentiles would do this. Not even uh, these sinners that you're surrounded by would engage in this sort of thing. And so he commands them to remove this man from the assembly, uh, turn him over to Satan. We, we dealt with this uh, maybe two years ago when we were going through 1 Corinthians, so we don't need to rehash all of that. But, but then he turns and he, he focuses and he says, you know, I asked you, I told you really, I commanded you not to associate with sexually immoral people. And when you tell uh, a bunch of uh, church members not to associate with immoral people, uh, well, the easy answer is to say, oh, okay, so we stay away from everybody out there. We, we come into our little enclave. And throughout the years in Christian churches and Christian sects, this happens. You see it. I mean, this is, this is the, the monastic movement where we take uh, all the people that are really serious about the faith and we take them away from the world and away from the culture and we put them in their little cloister uh, and they have their own community and they never have to deal with the outside except for the fact that they bring all their, their sins in with them anyway. And so you know, it's hard to, to separate from, uh, from that sort of thing. But Paul actually says, no, 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 no. I, I wasn't talking about those people. Because if that were the case, you'd have to completely go out of the world. And he says that's not the way you're supposed to do it. He takes for granted not just that people will be coming into the assembly of believers and will be hearing the message of the gospel, but that the people who are a part of that assembly will also have some sort of communication, some sort of relationship or fellowship with people that are outside the body of believers. And I think he says this is, this is a good thing. Now, we struggle with this, I think, in varying degrees depending on, on who we are, uh, depending on our personality, depending on uh, our responsibilities, depending on our stage in life. I mean, there are, there are some of you that you work day in and day out, and you are surrounded by unbelievers, and you couldn't get away from immoral people, quote-unquote, uh, if you tried. It's the air that you breathe every day when you go into work, uh, and, and so it's, it's no problem. You say, well, of course I read this. I, I'd, have to, I'd have to give up my job. I'd, I'd have to go be a monk if I was trying to get away from immoral people. Um, but then there are others um, that, for whatever reason, uh, they find that most weeks go by and they never have so much as a conversation with somebody who isn't a believer. And this can happen in strange places. Uh, it can happen for uh, stay-at-home moms um, where you are... Uh, especially if you're homeschooling, as many of the mothers, not all, but many of the mothers in our congregation can tell you um, that whether they're currently in that situation or they were in that situation, the week goes by and what are you doing? You're, you're dealing with your own kids. Uh, you're dealing with what happens in the home. Uh, maybe you go to a Bible study. Maybe you show up to church on Sunday and maybe you go and get groceries and you pass a bunch of people, but there are no uh, significant interactions and it feels almost like, well, I am kind of separated from the world, and, and to lay a burden, if you want to call it that, a burden of evangelism on, on those people, it almost feels like, well, how, how could I possibly fit anything in my life that has to do with, with people outside uh, the church community? Strangely enough, this happens for pastors, and I've heard it from lots of different people. One of the things that I was really excited about um, when I first felt a call to ministry, and I remember uh, having a conversation with my father uh, I said, I want to I become a pastor because I want to tell people about Jesus who haven't heard about Jesus yet. Um, and I'm not complaining about my job, but most weeks, most weeks I spend time with my family and I spend time with you folks. 
Uh, and most of you are professing believers. And so weeks can go by where your pastor, unless I am pushing myself, and honestly, most weeks I don't, uh, but unless I am pushing myself to go and have interactions with people outside my family and outside our church, many weeks go by and I don't have a gospel conversation. And you sit and you wait for somebody to come into the church office and say, tell me about Jesus. And guess what? It, <laughs> it doesn't happen very often. Uh, we get some people trying to sell office supplies, but that's, that's about it. Um, and so this can happen, and, and this can be an issue for us, this idea of how separated are we from the world, whether it's uh, because of your job, because of your life stage. Um, and then sometimes uh, in, in conservative circles like ours, uh, there are some Christians uh, that, that actively separate from the world. Not in a, not in a cloistered sort of way, uh, but you watch the way the, the culture is going, the way that our society is just running as fast as they can possibly run away from biblical Christianity. And maybe you've got kids at home and you say, well, I don't want my kids to have that sort of influence. I don't, it would be really disruptive to my family dynamic uh, to bring that sort of influence in and around my family, and so you, uh, you begin to distance yourself. Um, Rosaria Butterfield uh, has a, a, a book that she put out recently. It's, it's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And the book is all about um, hospitality, really. It's about uh, transformative biblical hospitality, and she opens the book in her first chapter by talking about a new neighbor that moved into uh, her neighborhood, and, uh, and she and her family, uh, she's married to a, a RPCNA pastor. In fact, um, she, if you know Rosaria Butterfield, she came out of a, uh, a lesbian background and was a queer studies professor at Syracuse University, was converted uh, largely through the hospitality of a minister who, who ministered to her in her own hometown. And she has this great vision for what hospitality can do and how dangerous it can be for the people that engage in hospitality. So she opens this book, uh, the gospel comes with a house key. She opens the book with a story about a neighbor who moved into their neighborhood, um, and he seemed pretty reclusive. When he moved in, um, he removed the doorbell, and he put up a security camera. Uh, and he put up fences, and he kept a big pit bull, and you would try to talk to him if you ever saw him outside, and he just wanted nothing to do with anybody else in the neighborhood. And she talked about the way that persistently, regularly, uh, they would try to minister to him. And eventually, uh, something happened. One of his dogs got loose, and they, they spent time in the neighborhood trying to help him find his dog. And, and there was this connection that was made, and, and he never invited them into his house, but they would have him over all the time. Uh, and it became this, this point where um, you know, he, he felt comfortable enough to share himself with his family. And it wasn't, it wasn't always easy, and it wasn't always pleasant, but he was this person that, uh, that they had brought in. And I, I think you probably have a sense for where the story is going, that he's converted and everything's wonderful. Well, that's not where the story goes. Uh, the story is that um, several months later, uh, his house was surrounded by DEA agents, and uh, he was running a meth lab. That's why he was so reclusive. And this was the person they were bringing in and around their family, and they had no idea and all of a sudden, everybody in the neighborhood knows, you know, the Butterfields know him. And there's this association, and they start to wonder. And there is a cost involved 
If you're going to have outside influences, if you're going to have connection with the world, that we're going to say, you know, I'm not going to refuse to have anything to do with people who are outside in the world, it's going to be costly. It might be costly for your reputation. It might be costly for uh, your, um, your schedule, just the, the way that you keep up with your life. It might be costly for the, the dynamics of your home. Uh, and there is an undeniable risk anytime you let people come close. Uh, but I think uh, this is exactly what we ought to be doing. Jesus prayed for his apostles in the high priestly prayer, John chapter 17. He said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. There is a, there is a sense when we read 1 Corinthians 9, and he says, no, 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 I, I don't want you to separate because then you'd have to go away from the world. But this is exactly in line with what Jesus was praying. And if you remember that prayer, it is all about the fact that he is leaving and he's committing the, the spread of the gospel and the church to those who will carry it on after him. And specifically in that prayer, the first portion of it, he's praying for his 12. And he tells them, you're going to go out into the world and it's going to be costly and people are going to hate you and they're going to persecute you, but I'm going to give you my spirit and I will be with you and you're going to stay. I'm leaving, but you're staying. And it's very important that they know that they heard Jesus praying for them, Lord, don't take them out of the world. That's where they need to be, even with all of the risks and all of the, the other things that, uh, that step in their way. That's where they need to be. But in the midst of that, the Lord also prayed that they would be kept from the evil one. Well, no, Rosaria Butterfield and, and her husband uh, weren't involved in a meth lab. They, they weren't involved in, in proliferating drugs and all the other things that this guy might have been, uh, been into. But, uh, but they did care for him, uh, and they had a ministry to him. And actually, she talked about the way that that began to open up avenues for ministry to her other neighbors. That it was an event that just rocked the neighborhood, and suddenly their house became the place where people would come and process. I can't believe somebody in our neighborhood was doing this. And it was a safe place that people could come and talk in all sorts of believers and unbelievers. Now, it's North Carolina, okay? Uh, maybe it doesn't work the same way uh, in Massachusetts. Maybe in Massachusetts, everybody just sort of looks askance at what's happening over there, and then they shut their door, and they, uh, they go back into their hidey hole. Uh, so maybe it happens differently in New England, but I still think that it's a wonderful picture. What ought we to be doing? Well, we ought to be engaging with the world. Here's how Alistair Begg puts it. He says, there can be no positive impact without meaningful contact. And so that is the question for us. How do we have uh, meaningful contact with the outside world? And what are the barriers that stand in the way of those things? Here's the part where we get interactive. What are, what are the barriers, you think, that keep us as we think about, okay, 1 Corinthians 9 and 10, uh, John 17, 15, and, and this idea of meaningful contact in the world. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> what is it uh, that stands in our way that we say, all right, I, I know what I'm called to, I know what the model is, but this is the hurdle that, it, that I can't get over? What do you think? Chris in the back and then John in the front. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and the cost shows up. I like what you're, you're pointing out there, Chris, that it's not just the cost of, okay, if I'm going to have my neighbor in my home for coffee, dessert, whatever, if I'm going to go and meet them, so that's, a, that's a cost that you can look at your schedule and say, oh, it, it takes this chunk of time. Uh, but the cost goes far beyond that. It, it goes into our prayer life. Uh, are we willing to be praying for these people that we're in contact with? Are we, are we willing to be praying for them uh, that the Lord would show us, give us that, that thought process to think, well, how can I take what I know of this person and connect it with what I know of the gospel? We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. Uh, but it's this idea of the, the work that's involved to do this, honestly, begins way before you ever have that gospel conversation. It's not just as though we think, okay, well, uh, you know, I'll show up, uh, and they'll be there, and I'll be here, and it'll be this great conversation, and I'll say, have you heard the good news of Jesus today? Sometimes that happens. Um, but very often, when we're talking about ministering to those who are around us, it takes work, uh, and there's a cost involved. I like the way that you've, you've stretched that out. Okay, John, uh, what are the obstacles that, that keep us from having contact with the world where we are? Um, it's not one of the books that I brought with me, but uh, J.I. Packer in Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, he uses that word friendship. Now, you can get um, too far into this idea of friendship evangelism, um, where friendship evangelism becomes all friendship and no evangelism. Um, but uh, you also know the way that the world can spot a phony relationship from a mile away. That if they get the, the sense that, you know, John's just hanging out with us because he wants to, he wants to get us to church, and that's it. He doesn't care about us. He cares about putting a notch in his belt and saying, ah, I did this thing, and I shared the gospel. Um, but, but Packer uses the word friendship, and he says that one of the things that people who want to share the gospel ought to do is pray to the Lord for the grace of friendship. And at the very least, that desire for friendship um, and, and connection with other people uh, is one of the sure marks of everyone who is learning to love their neighbor as themselves. That you would at least go outside of your normal routines to care about somebody enough, uh, to ask them about their day, uh, to, to be more than self-absorbed, as I often am. And just when somebody crosses your path, just stop and, and listen to them. It's amazing how much people like to talk about themselves. 
Uh, I say that from experience because I like to talk about myself. And I love when somebody else asks me about what is important in my life. Um, and this idea of friendship, of really getting to know them, this is also part of the work. You know, it, what your dad's talking about, being able to, to connect what we know of this person with what we know of the gospel. You've got to know the person. Uh, there's a sense in which the gospel is universal, and, and it can be proclaimed in very straightforward ways, and it touches and it's relevant to everybody. Um, but when you have a friendship with someone, you can, you can ask these questions, you can move in the direction that they know that you care about them, uh, and that, that you have something that touches on where they are. And that's part of the, the difficulty. Yeah. Ronnie. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and moving toward meaningful contact. And and maybe it just it starts there. Maybe the prayer is, Lord, show me what, what sort of meaningful contact I could have. Who is already in my sphere of influence that I can reach out to? Maybe it's just a very small thing. Um, but it's it's fostering real relationships um, and and it's moving the direction of of being able to Open our mouths in a way that we'll be heard. Um, good. All right. Oh, Mike. Candlestick maker, yeah. Yeah. You can put in your peapod order, and it'll just show up. Yeah. I heard a, a sociologist a while ago, I, I can't remember who it was, so I can't attribute the quote, um, but he was just talking about changes in social behaviors among Americans, and just looking through the decades, and he said, the television brought Americans inside, 
and air conditioning kept them there. And so we, we don't need to. And, and you add the internet to that, uh, you don't need to go outside. Uh, and fewer and fewer homes have a front porch, maybe something on the back where you can hang out with your family, but the idea that you would, you would hang out in a street-facing area in your neighborhood that others would see you, you wave to your neighbors as they go by, that you know your neighbors' names. I mean, how many of us can name everyone on our street? I can't. Um, you know, and and maybe, that's, maybe that's a fault of just not knowing who is around us. But it does come back to this idea of you, you really can only have so many significant connections, and we need, to, we need to level with that. And we also need to level with the fact that even those who would want to say, well, I, I separate because I don't, I don't want those outside influences. I'm going to separate from the world. Well, you still have a family, don't you? <laughs> and, uh, and how many of us would be able to say, oh, no, 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 everyone in my extended family is already a believer? I, I doubt it. Um, th there's somebody in there. There's a weird uncle somewhere uh, who, who thinks that, that you're crazy for going to church every week. That maybe you've got a connection with that person, and it's already there, and, it, and, and part of it is thinking, you know, what are the connections that you already have uh, that you've, you've been afraid to use already, and praying that the Lord would use you in the connections that you already have. Kids. Uh, if you have kids that aren't walking with the Lord, if you have brothers and sisters, if you have parents, uh, it can be really hard. We saw uh, Jesus, you know, a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown. It can be hard to share the gospel with people that are really close to you. Um, but uh, sometimes, and you, and you hear stories sometimes, of, of people who were converted and their family who watches them and knows them actually gets a better view because they know exactly what they were like beforehand. And they're not able to hide who they are now. And so that close connection becomes an opportunity to say, you can watch my life. Watch me for the next 10 years. See if this change is real. See if this is something that the Lord's actually doing, and, and maybe he could do it for you, uh, and, you know, and, and just keep watching. Yeah, so we have to, we have to deal with this uh, idea of, uh, of uh, connection. All right, so the question is how. Uh, how do we do this? How do we reach out? Uh, one of the other books that I suggested, and if you're interested in thinking more about evangelism, uh, again, I'll, I'll make a plug for this book, Honest Evangelism by Rico Tice. He has an approach uh, that he says, you know, how do you gain these connections? How do you uh, grow in, uh, in connections with people who are not believers? He has a, a two-pronged approach. One, he says, chat your faith. He's English, so that's sort of an Englishism, uh, Anglicism. Uh, chat your faith and then ask a pain line question. Now, chatting your faith, that is, have, uh, have the honesty and, uh, and have the willingness to make your Christian life a part of your everyday conversation. This is where a lot of us uh, fumble uh, right off the bat. Uh, that we know that we live in a, a culture that, uh, oh, you, you do what on Sunday morning? You don't go out running. You're, you're, you're not, uh, you know, training for a triathlon every, every weekend day. You're not doing all these other things. No, no, I, I go to worship. Uh, and when you're uh, around, what is it, uh, the bubbler. Uh, when you're standing around the bubbler uh, and people are saying, oh, what'd you do this weekend? We had a great worship service. You know, or we had an okay worship service. The pastor's in a rut. It's okay, but he'll get better. Um, you know, but it's a part of your life, isn't it? If you're a believer, if you're a committed Christian, the Lord's day is your day of rest and worship. It's meant to be the highlight of your week. It might not have pyrotechnics every week like we did last week. It might not be the, the pizzazz moment of your week, but it ought to be the time, especially if you're one of these people that's surrounded by unbelievers. 
It's like a whale coming up to breathe before you descend back down to the depths. What did you do this weekend? I went with my family, and I, I sat, and we were ministered to, and, and it was great. Maybe you don't use those words. Maybe you, you, you change the language. But if this is one of the most important things that your whole family dynamic, your personal dynamic revolves around, why don't we speak about that? If you're dealing with things, I'll get to you there, Tim. If you're dealing with things in your family, if you're working through issues and you're doing so from a really Christian standpoint, why not talk about those things? Well, we're really, we're trying to figure out how to, how to do this. Um, you know, we're, we need a new car. But we, we're pretty convinced that we ought not to be taking out loans. I, you know, this is a, another topic altogether. But maybe you're thinking about these things. And, and so we're... We're waiting. We're, we're putting away money until we can pay cash for, for a car. And other people, well, that's crazy. Why don't you just get a, a two-year lease? Well, I, I have these principles and things that I'm thinking about, and uh, maybe that's not your conviction, but, but why don't we talk about those things and, and open that conversation? Tim, you're going to add to that? Maybe. Um, you know, I, I think that's always a good thing. Um, Alistair Begg, again, um, he, he told the story of uh, a young man that he knew that was, a, was a, an amateur baseball player, uh, like in the, I don't know what the, the amateur leagues are, but like high up next to MLB, traveling all over with his team. And, and everybody knew he was a Christian. And he told the story, he's sitting in the dugout, and, and this Christian man sitting in the middle, and the guy on his right asks him, why don't you ever go out with us? After, you know, we, we have a great time. We go to these bars, we do all these things. Man, it's great. Uh, why, don't, why don't you ever uh, do that? Oh, it, you know, it, it, maybe you're, you're just a stick in the mud. And that's, you know, oh, I can't play volleyball because I go to church. Oh, Tim, he's, he's a stick in the mud. We have, to, we have to arrange our volleyball schedule around Tim and his church schedule. And maybe some people don't get it. And he said, there's this guy sitting in the dugout and one person saying, like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you ever go out and do these things with us? The guy on the other side, uh, so the first guy says, why, you know, why are you so religious? And the guy on the other side, overhearing this conversation, pokes his head around and says, he's not religious. He has a relationship with Jesus. Now, neither one of them are believers. And they've both seen the same thing. And one of them just whew, totally gets it. And the other one, he's not drawn in yet, but he says, no, there, this is something that's important. And he, he never would have known, except for that conversation where somebody else is saying, why don't you ever go do this thing? So, so maybe the Lord is using it like that. Um, but, uh, but I think that's a good starting place. And, and I say that uh, uh, knowingly, starting place. Not the ending place, um, but that they know who you are and what's important to you. Here's what Rico Tice says. Uh, about chatting your faith. He says, by raising an aspect of your faith in conversation, 
even if that conversation then moves on to other topics, you've shown the person you're speaking to that Christian faith is relevant for real life, that it's important to your life, and that you're open to them asking you about it. Now, who knows um, whether by this, uh, this small witness that they know who you are and what's important to you, who knows whether someday in the future they'll have a family crisis and nobody to come alongside of them and say, let me pray with you. And they don't know what to do. And suddenly the only person that's in their life is Tim Bleeker and their volleyball team. Who knows? The Lord can use that. The Lord can, can plant those seeds, and he can plant those seeds through your relationships where they just simply know that you believe in something beyond matter and motion. That could be just the beginning point. Uh, and so this is, this is an important starting place. It's not the end, but it's beginning a, a good starting place. The other thing he says is to ask a pain line question. And this is more involved, and this is where we begin to talk about, well, what is the cost? What is the work involved? Um, and, and when he talks about a pain line question, uh, Rico has in mind a custom-tailored question that's intended to move the conversation in a gospel direction. And it's based on an established relationship. Uh, now, I want to read you a little bit of an extended quote because I think he gives us an idea for what this looks like. He's, he calls it a pain line question because he says, this is a question that comes with a risk because it might be met with hostility. This is where you are taking a step to, to put it out there, not just, oh, I go to church, but what do you think about this? What happens if X? So here's, here's how he puts it. He says, for instance, for my friend who's young and suffers with chronic neck pain, I want gently to ask her, what if your neck never gets better? And I'm hoping for a chat about the difference between human happiness, which depends all on our circumstances being good, and Christian joy, which is internal and hope-filled, whatever our circumstances, because it relies on knowing Jesus and that he is for us and has saved us. Or for my neighbor who loves gardening, I want to ask them what they think is behind the beauty of the natural world. And for my other neighbor who seems very angry with God, I want to summon up my courage and just say, why are you so angry with God? What's made you feel this way? And so this is where we're getting in the, in the direction of, you know, it, it, one approach to evangelism is that it's the same question for everybody. Um, you're, you're probably familiar with evangelism explosion. Uh, D. James Kennedy, uh, a few beginning questions. One of the questions is, if you were to die today and stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? That's a legitimate question. That can be a really good question in the right setting. And some people look down on D. James Kennedy and, uh, and down on evangelism explosion, and they say, I, I don't want to do evangelism that way because I don't like the way that you do it. And, uh, and his response was always, well, I like the way that I do evangelism better than the way that you don't do evangelism. So, so we'll just put that out there, right? So, so the, the pat question and the, the canned approach can be a good thing. And if that's the only arrow you have in your quiver, use it. Use that. Um, but what Tice is talking about here is, is a custom-tailored question that you know this person, and you know something of, of where the gospel coincides with their life, and you're willing to engage them with that idea. And I think this really uh, gets to that question of, you have to know people well enough to be able to ask this question. And even if you have lots of little connections where you say, oh, church is important to me, my family's working through this, X, Y, Z, uh, I think for most believers, there are very few connections that we have with the outside world um, where we know people well enough 
to know how the gospel connects with their life. This is part of the, the struggle with ministering in a place like Concord. You, you hear it, maybe you've heard it uh, in the conversations over the years. Concord is such an affluent town. Everybody's doing so well, they all think they don't need God. But if you actually talk to them, uh, and you, you start to, it doesn't matter where you are, it doesn't matter if you, you live in these affluent towns, these sort of you know, white-collar uh, suburban neighborhoods, everybody has issues. Everybody has a, a parent that they're trying to minister to, parent trying to care for. Everybody has, uh, you know, strife in their job. Everybody has something that's falling apart in their house. Everybody has, has some persistent issue that they come back to. And, and what Tice is talking about here is getting to know them well enough that you uncover those issues where you can say, what do you think about this? What if this never changes? Where does, where does something beyond what you can see coincide with with where your life is. And I think that's one of the things we need to be praying about, that the Lord would give us uh, a mind and, and a heart for the unsaved, that we would get to know them well enough that we can ask this sort of question. I love this approach, uh, and, and I hope you take it to heart. Now, I want to do one more thing before we uh, move on for today. And next time, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about, um, going to talk about the message. But I want to talk more about the, the methods and, and what what exactly, where exactly does evangelism show up? Now, I, maybe you don't think the way that I think. <laughs> uh, but this sort of thing helps me just to visualize, and maybe some of you data nerds will really, will really like this. If not, uh, check out until we close in prayer, and that's okay. Um, but as we think about where evangelism happens, I think of two axes. Um, one, that, that we're talking about uh, a continuum between church evangelism and personal evangelism. Something that happens as the whole body gathers together and something that happens as you were just out there flying solo, all on your own. And there is a continuum in between. Uh, and there's, there's also a continuum between uh, far evangelism, those that you don't know. In fact, you might not even know who the message is going to. Um, and, and things that are close, members of, of your own family. And I think a lot of the different areas of evangelism we can, uh, we can put on there. And so we're going to plot a few of these on the grid um, and, and get your idea for where you think they, they might should go. Uh, the first one is corporate worship. Uh, now, we need to differentiate between, uh, perhaps, between um, pre-evangelism and evangelism. Um, if you invite someone to worship, that's not evangelism. Um, they, they might be evangelized when they get here, uh, and they might not be evangelized when they leave, and we talked about that last time. So what do you think? I don't know, it's kind of weird. Okay, good, let's, you know, whatever. Uh, so it, it can turn into personal evangelism, but what happens when the church is gathered and unbelievers are there? Where would you plot that on the, on the graph? Anybody? Ronnie? Lower right side, okay. Here's where I put it. So most of the time in the, in the church, it's going to be a, a church activity, right? The gathered body, and most of the time you're going to be with people that you know. Let's not neglect the fact that evangelism happens for people that have been attending for a long time. It happens among our kids. It happens among people who are just sort of doing this thing, and then they find out, uh, Lee, if you want my uh, slide, I'll be happy to give it to you. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to take pictures of all of them. Um, but uh, but it, it happens in our congregations, maybe even among people that have been a part of us for a long time. And sometimes people just wander in and we don't know them. And they show up, and maybe they'll hear the gospel, and we pray for that. We pray that the Lord would do that. Now, this is different than, let's say, street preaching. 
Now, where would we put street preaching on this continuum? Tim? Top left? Okay. I, I, put, it, I put it down. Right. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Could be um, just sort of out there by yourself. Um, but it will be the sort of thing that if you're, if you're street preaching, you're doing street evangelism, that's bright. Um, you're going to look people in the eye and you're going to talk to them. It's not something like, let's say, a radio broadcast, um, which would be like all the way over here. Normally, there's one person doing the radio broadcast, and you have no idea. You don't even know if people are listening. You don't know if they might be tuning in. Uh, you don't know where they are and who's listening, and you just trust the Lord that he would use that. Um, but, but these are all, uh, you know, maybe in a continuum. Maybe you'd plot them somewhere else. That's okay. That's not the point. Um, but, but they show up in different areas, but they're all the same basic thing. It's the gospel being presented, sometimes in a corporate way, um, sometimes in a not-so-corporate way, um, and, uh, and, it, and it goes out there. Now, Tim, you, you raised the idea of tracting, handing out tracts. I would say that's right up there with, uh, with radio broadcasting. Um, and, and this is a more like personal evangelism thing. When my dad was first converted, um, he would take my brother uh, and he would take me and we would go to a very large flea market just across the Ohio border, um, and we would hand out those little cartoon chick tracks. And it, it was great, because you, you give a stack of those uh, to a five-year-old at the time, and people will take that stuff from a kid that they wouldn't take from an adult. Uh, when we stand, uh, and you guys are all singing at the, at the Christmas thing, and I'm out there uh, normally handing out some flyers for the Christmas Eve service, uh, my boys love to join in that with me. And lots of people will look at me and say, no thanks. And when Neil and Ben have their hand out, they go, okay, yeah, that's good. So if you have kids, exploit that. <laughs> Get them out there. Um, and this, this has, has fallen on hard times, tracting. Um, but a, a lot of uh, the, 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 the people of the past, faithful men of the past, were, were big on tracks. J.C. Ryle was a track writer. Uh, so he was a bishop. He also wrote tracks. And we're, we're not talking about those little cartoons that are a little booklet. We're talking about eight or nine or ten pages. This is the sort of thing that people that didn't have the internet would be, uh, would be ready to read because they've got no, nothing else. And so he would send out these tracks. Uh, How shalt thou be saved? How readest thou? All these, these wonderful tracks uh, from J.C. Ryle. And lots of people use this. Uh, and uh, and I, I hope um, that, it, that it was used to, uh, to bring people to the Lord. Now, Maybe tracting isn't your thing, uh, and, and maybe it's a little too impersonal for you, um, but what about letter writing? Even if you can't uh, get to the place where um, you, would, you would knock on somebody's door and say, let's talk about Jesus, are there connections, even if you're an introvert, are there connections that you could sit down and write a letter uh, and encourage someone in the gospel? Where would you put that? So it, it, it move over? Yeah, probably maybe even a little bit closer to close because you, you know the person you're writing to, right? And again, this is something that, that the Lord used um, for centuries um, with, with faithful men. So one of my favorite pastors is Robert Murray Machane. 
Um, and, and this is a book of memoirs and remains, a lot of his letters. Uh, and there is a series of six letters written to a young woman uh, who is very sickly. Uh, and they are all evangelistic letters. You can pick up a, a book like this. You can get it free online, Google Books. Uh, you can get the letters of John Newton, another wonderful evangelistic letter writer. And will just warm your heart, even if you never write an evangelistic letter, just seeing the way that others were used of the Lord to share the gospel. And I want to read a, a small excerpt for you from this one. Um, he writes, My only reason for writing to you is that I may direct your soul to Jesus, the sinner's friend. Quote, This man receiveth sinners. I would wish much to know that you were truly united to Christ, and then, come life, come death, you will be truly and eternally happy. Do you think you've been convinced of sin? This is the Holy Spirit's work. This is his first work upon the soul. If you didn't know that your body was dangerously ill, you never would have sent for your physician, and so you will never go to Christ, the heavenly physician, unless you feel that your soul is sick, even unto death. Oh, pray for the deep discoveries of your real state by nature and by practice. The world will say to you that you're an innocent and harmless girl. Do not believe them. The world is a liar. Pray to see yourself exactly as God sees you. Pray to know the worth of your soul. And then later, oh, that your heart may cleave to Christ. May you forsake all and follow Jesus Christ. Count everything lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. You will never stand righteous before God in yourself. You are welcome this day to stand righteous before God in Jesus. Pray over Philippians 3, 7 and 9. I will try and pray for you. Grace be with you, your friend in Jesus, etc. Just a wonderful, heartwarming account. And again, maybe you wouldn't write a letter using that same language today. But did you hear the boldness? He says, I'm praying for you that you would know Christ. Don't listen to the world when it tells you that there's nothing wrong with you. You're a sinner. Uh, Just like the rest of us, you need the Lord. Um, And so if you need your your heart warm toward evangelism, maybe even uh, toward writing a a bold letter, but you notice what, uh, what McShane was doing there. He was doing what... Uh, what Tice was talking about. It's a pain line question. He knows this girl uh, is sickly. He knows she's on her deathbed. And so he uses that situation and he says, what about now? What's next? Where are you going? And, and what should you think about your, uh, your relationship with the heavenly physician? Now, all of the ones that we've talked about so far uh, are, are monologue style evangelism. Uh, and they're all evangelism. But they're, things get really interesting Uh, when uh, evangelism takes the form of a dialogue. Um, There is, we've already mentioned, door-to-door evangelism. Uh, Now that might be, uh, normally you'd you'd go out with another person, uh, and so I'm I'm not putting it all the way up to the top. And uh, it might be that you're going with your neighbors, might be that you're going in a totally different direction just in a neighborhood, and you don't know who might be there. Um, Now this, again, has fallen on hard, hard times among evangelicals because we don't want to be confused with those people in the white shirts with the name tags. Um, and, and I get it. Uh, I get it. Um, but there was a time that folks from Redeemer did this. Is, is that right? You, you went door to door and at least invited people to come to worship services. Bill? It was just within a mile of this building. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the Lord can use that. The Lord can use those connections uh, that we might not, we might not think about. We're, we're over time, so let's put a few more in here. Gospel conversation with neighbors. 
Um, this is the one that we've been talking about mostly. This is what most of us think about when we think of that scary kind of evangelism uh, where you've got somebody you know and you're moving the conversation in a gospel direction. Uh, and and the, the farther it gets up uh, to the right side where you're disconnected from the larger body and the closer it is, sometimes the more nerve-wracking it can be. Uh, because then you're, you're looking at evangelism as it's not just throwing a message out there and it's not just dealing with people that you'll never have anything to do with ever again. Um, but it's talking to people who you'll interact with. It's talking with people on your own, maybe, uh, that you'll have something to do with. Um, VBS. And that's a stand-in for lots of different, you know, you, you went out and you, you canvassed the neighborhood because there was a program. That's a wonderful opportunity for evangelism. But the Lord can use that, especially as, as people are preaching the gospel to children who come to a VBS, and then they normally throw a, a, a big, closing ceremony on the weekend, and you bring in the parents, and then you preach the gospel to them as well. That could be a wonderful thing. Uh, but, but other things like it, you know, these are, these are just uh, different methods, different ideas. What about your small group Bible study? You can use that, too. And, well, maybe people don't want to come because we're, we're walking through Ezekiel, and it's a tough slog. And Well, maybe you, you pick a book that's easier. Maybe you pick a book that people can come in, and, and they don't have any experience with the gospel yet. And they can hear and they can, they can get to know something about um, what's going on. Uh, and then the last one, do not neglect the fact that evangelizing your own children is evangelism. If you are that person who never has a conversation with the outside world, you are stuck at home uh, with three kids uh, <laughs> uh, or, or maybe more, um, that's evangelism. And, and don't look at this chart and say, oh, I'm... I'm not tracting, so I'm not doing evangelism. I'm not the preacher, so I'm not doing evangelism. The reality is that the Lord uses all of these things, and often in, uh, in concert with one another. I've told the story before about my dad and about his conversion. Uh, my dad was a truck driver, and he went in. It was like local trucking within a tri-state area. He drove a gas tanker. Uh, he went in one day uh, to pick up his truck and go on his runs, and his truck was in the shop, and so he got somebody else's truck. And the radio stations were all wrong. And he couldn't find the hard rock that he liked to listen to. And as he's driving down the road with 40,000 gallons of gasoline behind him, he lands on a gospel sermon, and he's converted. Now, that wasn't the only thing the Lord used to convert my dad. Because there was a whole lifetime of other people interacting with him. There was my mother at home who would ask him, Periodically, will you come to church with us today? No, 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 I'm not going to. And every once in a while, he would, there were people that were, that were ministering to him. There were conversations that he would have, and the Lord brought it to a head that some would plant and some would water, and finally the Lord gave the growth in a BP tanker truck going down the highway. So don't neglect the fact that the Lord might use a lot of these. Oh, I, I can't write this letter. It, it won't mean anything. Just putting out a tract, it won't mean anything. Just bringing kids to a VBS, it, the Lord won't use that. Well, he uses lots and lots and lots of little things to scatter the seed and to water the soil that he would bring people to himself. And so I, I just want to end uh, with an encouragement today that where the Lord has you and whatever he allows you to do and whatever we can think together about what the Lord might do in our church, let's do that. Uh, let's try to have uh, engagement with the world. Let, let's pray that the Lord would give us a zeal for the unconverted uh, that he would make us wise to win souls as well. Please pray with me. Oh, Lord and God, thank you for your word. We pray that today you would uh, continue uh, to do just that. You would sharpen our hearts for evangelism. You would give us 
uh, care for the unconverted, that you would uh, draw us to yourself. Show us Jesus. Show us our sin. Show us more and more our need for you. And, uh, and make us lovers uh, of those that you are calling to yourself. Help us uh, to be the harvesters and the workers in your fields, right, white with harvest. And we pray that you would do this for the sake of your glory and for your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.